Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm George Selgin, the director of Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. It's a, a great pleasure for me this evening uh, to introduce our speaker, James Grant. I've known Jim for uh, quite a long time, actually. I, I believe we met Jim in 1982 at Harriman House at one of the Committee for Monetary. What's that? No, I don't go back that far. But Jim was already an old man, as I recall. Uh, uh, but he doesn't seem to have aged since. And uh, uh, so I've known him for a long time. We were even neighbors for a while when I lived in uh, Brooklyn Heights. But I have to confess, I've never read his biography or any of the biographical notes that are available about him. So I did so to bone up for tonight's event and learned that he's even more interesting than I realized. And I thought he was pretty interesting before. For one thing, and here Jim has something in common with Alan Greenspan, he almost went into a career as a musician, not playing the sax or the clarinet, as Greenspan did, but the French horn. And I couldn't help thinking when I read that what they would sound like playing together. Uh, he also... Uh, he began his journalistic career uh, at the Baltimore Sun, just like one of my great heroes, H.L. Uh, Mencken, with whom he has, he shares the distinction of being uh, a one of the most superb American prose writers, if, my, if I may say so. Uh, but of course, we're particularly glad, to, and, and, and I should say, Jim is uh, perhaps best known as the publisher and main contributor to Grant's Interest Rate Observer. So one of his occupations is watching interest rates. I suppose he's <laughs> had a pretty dull life these past couple days since not really very much is going on in, in that part of the world. So he's been able to take a break and come talk to us about one of his books. Now, I haven't read all of Jim's books. Uh, but I've read quite a few. I'll just mention some of my favorites. Money of the Mind, A History of Finance in the United States is a marvelous book, and I, I highly recommend it. The Forgotten Depression, about the depression of the 19, early 1920s, and if you didn't know about that, that's because you forgot it. And, uh, of course, his latest, Walter Badgett, The Life and Times of the Greatest Victorian. I was going to say uh, some of the, my own impressions about the book, tell you how truly wonderful I think it is. Absolutely a delightful book. But I cannot top what I think is a tremendously astute uh, blurb someone wrote about it, who said it was, quote, it is the greatest book in the English language. That's quite something. Um, in case you're wondering, the source for that is Grant's Interest Rate Observer. <laughs> but I can assure you, the opinion is hardly unique to them. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jim Grant. Well, thank you, George. Thank you, Cato. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for giving up this beautiful day to be indoors with me. I appreciate it a great deal. Um, 
So uh, in the four hours given to me this afternoon, I would like to tell you about Walter Badgett, whose name you say, as uh, you would say, Gadget. And um, so the idea that the Federal Reserve should uh, uh, cut short a financial panic by filling the pockets of the very people who arguably caused it uh, did not come from nowhere. Uh, Walter Badgett deserves a large me uh, measure of credit, or if you like, uh, blame. Uh, Badgett uh, was the author of uh, Lombard Street, uh, the short aphoristic treatise on banking that uh, uh, former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben S. Bernanke, PhD, uh, so often invokes in support of his aggressive response to the Great uh, Recession. Uh, to quell a crisis, uh, Badgett prescribed uh, central bankers should lend freely at a high rate of interest. Uh, Mr. Bernanke and his successors worldwide have lent freely all right, uh, though not necessarily at interest rates that you would normally call high. Uh, Badgett was born in 1826 into an English country banking family, and he was a public intellectual before the invention of that job description. Uh, he edited his father-in-law's small circulation weekly, I believe it was called The Economist. Um, it had a circulation, by the way, in Badgett's time, his time being the 1860s and 70s there of uh, not quite 4,000. Uh, Badgett wrote essays on Shakespeare, Adam Smith, John Milton, and a host of other literary and political and historical figures, and um, as well as the celebrated description of British politics entitled The English Constitution. You probably, uh, anybody watch The Crown on Netflix? Yeah, well, uh, The English Constitution uh, actually upstaged some of those actors. Uh, he was a trusted advisor, was Badgett to Prime Minister William E. Gladstone. He was an unsuccessful candidate for Parliament, and he invented the Treasury Bill, which uh, we may forgive him for, or we may not. Unusual, this literary giant uh, chose to expend some of his gifts on the perverse consequences of low interest rates, almost as if he were meaning to help us today and here is what he said about that, alluding to the national symbol or figurehead of England. He said, uh, uh, John Bull can stand a great deal, but he cannot stand 2%. He meant positive 2%. <laughs> this with respect to the temptations ever fostered uh, to incur speculative risks in exchange for the hope of, of a superior or at least living wage quality returns. An alumnus of University College London, Badgett studied for the bar, abandoned that study, traveled to Paris to clear his head, and there filed a series of brilliant dispatches on the coup d'etat by Louis Napoleon in 1851. He came of professional age, did Badgett, in the bounding British prosperity of the 1850s. He joined the family bank called Stuckey's, managed its Bristol branch, and wrote his lengthy, scintillating essays for sheer pleasure. It was the, uh, the great day of the British amateur in cricket, in politics, and in central banking. And uh, Badgett uh, himself reveled in literature. Complications set in when he answered a summons to meet James Wilson, who had founded The Economist in 1843 to fight 
the good fight against the so-called corn laws for free trade. Uh, Wilson's paper stood for the purest strain of laissez-faire. It opposed uh, public health regulation on the principle that each should look after his own private health. Uh, the publisher was much taken with a literary banker and recruited him to write occasional articles, uh, duly signed a banker for The Economist. Eliza, the eldest of Wilson's six daughters, was likewise struck by the tall, dark stranger uh, to whom her sisters and she took to referring to as the young gentleman out of Miss Austen's novels. Badgett and she were married in 1858, when two years later Wilson died in India, where he was serving as colonial finance secretary. Badgett took over the editorship of the family newspaper and proceeded to make his uh, journalistic mark. It was a rare week when he didn't write five or 6,000 words or so. That's the equivalent of 20 or 25 or so double-spaced typewritten pages. Although he didn't typewrite, he uh, wrote longhand standing up at a desk. Uh, and this was besides editing the other copy, uh, making sense of the statistics and trying to uh, build the immovable circulation of less than 4,000. Maybe Badgett was penalized in that respect by the reputation he gained as the editor of one of the only papers, financially oriented papers in London, that wouldn't take a bribe. Well, you couldn't accuse The Economist or its editor of uh, sensationalism. Uh, the dense type was unrelieved by pictures or tabloid-grade headlines. An article on horse breeding, for example, ran out under the two-word screamer, Horse breeding. <laughs> but the writing was gorgeous and the ideas were consequential. Badgett found his special metier in money banking and interest rates. Now, gold and silver were money, said Badgett. They and nothing else. Uh, checks and banknotes were mere IOUs, promises to pay money. Uh, the notes we carry in our wallet are Federal Reserve notes. They, it's as if they were redeemable in something besides small metallic change made of base money, base metals. But no, they are money itself. They are the underlying. Badgett insisted, to use the language of derivatives, that gold and silver were the underlying, and paper money were the, uh, the derivatives, were the promises to pay. Uh, so it fell to the issuers of these paper liabilities to honor the obligation to convert them on demand to coin. Uh, but since gold paid no interest, banks only reluctantly stacked it in their vaults. And because lending was lucrative and growth was intoxicating, even a sober-sided banker could overissue his promises to pay the metal of which he personally held so little. A deposit insurance lay in the distant future. So how to resolve the tension inherent in these opposing incentives. Why, let the Bank of England bear the whole cost of maintaining the nation's gold reserve Badgett prescribed. And let that great institution acknowledge its public duty to intervene when, as seemed to happen every 10 years, the banks forgot themselves and became overextended. And when, in the inevitable ensuing panic, the depositors came running for gold, as was their right, let the old lady of Threadneedle Street be the one to supply it. 
Now, Badgett spoke from interest in the Stuckey's Bank, of which he was at first an employee and at length a partner, an officer, was generating returns on equity for you financiers in the audience of 40%. 40% on equity compared to what is regarded today as an acceptable rate of return, uh, say it, call it 12 on the high side, 12% on what the stockholders invested. So if you would object to Badgett's uh, 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 insistence that somebody else bear the cost of being prudent, a uh, so few would, would object to that today, but many did object to it at the time. But here is Badgett uh, talking about uh, what to do in a panic, what uh, the central bank ought to do in a panic. He said, uh, uh, he said, he called it a species of neuralgia, and according to the rules of science, you must not starve it. Uh, so he said that in wild periods of alarm, one failure makes many, and the best way to prevent the derivative failures is to arrest the primary failure which causes them. Um, you know, Burke used, Edmund Burke used somewhat of the same metaphor in talking about the revolution in France. If your neighbor's house is on fire, you can't just wait for somebody else or your neighbor himself to put it out. Uh, but of course, there is a problem with the assurance that uh, someone else will bear the cost of prudence. The very promise of unlimited emergency aid would instigate the financial malpractice that caused emergencies. Uh, so said Thompson Hankey, who was the, uh, my hero's sparring partner on this question. Said Hankey, until such a doctrine is repudiated by the banking interest, the difficulty of pursuing any sound principle of banking and London will always be very great. So Badgett won the argument, and contrary to Hankey, English banking was not immediately the worst for it. The wrenching failure of the city of Glasgow Bank in 1878, one year after Badgett's death, marked the temporary close of the age of the decennial run and panic. But the 21st century, seems to me, is, is rather shaping up as, as Hankey's time. Not that either he or Badgett anticipated the upending of the gold standard, the enactment of deposit insurance, the advent of sub-zero nominal interest rates, or the transformation of central bankers into the stars of the financial cable TV networks. Can a man, even a genius, be fairly charged with failure to predict the distant evil consequences of the things he said or didn't quite say or said in a setting so foreign to that of his posterity that he is bound to be misinterpreted. Badgett, though he did not invent the practice of the lender of last resort by any means, uh, did, through the great suppleness and beauty of his prose, he did canonize it. But it was with every good intention. Um, so that is the Cliff's Notes version. You have to buy the book now. You know the book. Um, but I would like to add a few more details um, about Badgett's time, about the people uh, the, with whom he rubbed shoulders, about his, uh, his more detailed views on lender of last resort, on his uh, achievements as an author, and on the problems he left behind under the heading of moral hazard. Um, uh, to begin with, let's uh, uh, take on this fraught question of a lender of last resort. You know, there was, um, uh, Badgett was born early in 1826. There was a, 
a ferocious panic in 1825, and the Bank of England reacted to it by lending not only against sound banking collateral at a high rate of interest, but it lent against actual illiquid merchandise. That's how far off the reservation the Bank of England went three months before or so before the birth of the guy who has been charged with the moral hazard idea. So uh, it wasn't exactly the case that uh, Badgett grew up in a world of monetary purity. Um, the world in which he did grow up was one uh, of, uh, of laissez-faire. You know, uh, decades before the birth of Walter Badgett, uh, Edmund Burke wrote about monetary matters in central banking in Reflections on the Revolution in France. He was writing to, to castigate uh, these primitives in France who were uh, despoiling civilization. And, uh, and he, he wrote a couple of pages that have gotten very little attention. I was recently reading some Burke, and I was so struck by them, I thought I would share one or two sentences with you to show you the world that, that Badgett inherited. Now, the Bank of England did lend against uh, very heterodox types of collateral in 1825, and, and uh, it rather was off the reservation. But it insisted always uh, that it wanted little to do with managing things. It was not in charge. Uh, one of the officers of the bank said that uh, uh, he was, quote, very desirous not to exert any power at all. Imagine that. They wanted no power. They wanted, rather, monetary matters to be regulated through the uh, markets, either demanding paper for coin or vice versa. They wanted to be directed through the flow of specie in and out of the country and by the nature of the credit cycle, but not to command. And here is Edmund Burke, decades before Badgett's birth, reminding the French what it was that gave English money its value. He said, at present, uh, he said, directing this to the French, at present, the state of your treasury sinks every day more and more in cash and swells more and more in fictitious representation. Fictitious. When so little within or without is now found but paper, the representative not of opulence but of want, the creature not of credit but of power, they imagine that our flourishing state in England is owing to that bank paper and not to the bank paper to the flourishing condition of our commerce, to the solidity of our credit, or and to the total exclusion of all idea of power from any part of the transaction. <coughs> they forget that in England, not one shilling of paper money of any description is received but of choice, that the whole has had its origin in cash actually deposited, cash meaning gold and silver, and that it is convertible at pleasure in an instant and without the smallest loss into cash again. Our paper is of value in commerce because in law it is of none. Isn't that lovely? That's Edmund Burke uh, writing in about what, uh, was he, where is it, 1792 or thereabouts? A generation before the birth of Walter Badgett. Um, 
So Badgett comes into this world, and uh, he is the, uh, as I mentioned, the partner in a bank that's a flourishing condition. Seemingly panic-proof was Stuckey's, the family bank. It uh, sailed through all the difficulties of the age, an occasional defalcation, and one or two problems at a branch. But uh, in the main, it went from strength to strength, earning extraordinary returns on a stockholder's investment. Now, um, uh, there was every incentive at the time for the stockholders to guard that investment. They were, as general partners of a banking institution, this is before limited liability, as general partners of a bank, they were at risk, uh, down as they used to say, to the last shilling and last acre of their net worth to the, to the debts of the firm, mainly to the liabilities to the depositors. If the bank were impaired or insolvent, they, uh, would proceed to liquidate their estates. Uh, you would suppose, with this sort of Damocles hanging over the necks of the bankers of England, that all would have been relatively smooth sailing, but no, uh, they were human, as are we, as are even the mandarins of the Fed, and from time to time they miscalculated. It, is one of the, it was one of the, the great instructive uh, uh, portions of my research, and this to come to realize face-to-face -face that... Uh, um, there is no elixir, there is no certainty, no system that is human-proof. And I came to realize and knew that uh, money is not humanity's best subject, uh, credit still less so. So what to do in a panic? Well, you know, so um, I highlighted this. Badgett said uh, uh, that the uh, central bank owed a duty and... Uh, uh, and uh, Thompson Hankey, the most unprepossessing in appearance, the um, plainest in writing style, said the opposite. I will um, read two very brief quotations from each to show you the, uh, the nature of the controversy. And you will see, I hope, when I finish, that we have solved exactly nothing in the succeeding 100 and something years. So here is. Um, is Thompson Hankey, uh, who, is, uh, who wears, as far as I'm concerned, the, uh, the white hat in this, this controversy on, uh, on, um, on what it takes to be a good banker. It doesn't take very much. He said, all you have to do is to understand the difference between a mortgage and a commercial bill of credit. Mortgage is saleable, but not self-liquidating. It doesn't uh, turn itself into cash. Whereas a 90-day bill, ah, uh, that finances commerce, that is as good almost as cash, said Hankey. So if bankers would only learn the difference, they would not become overextended, not become illiquid, and not stand in need of the assistance of the general public through the instrumentality of the Bank of England. Here is Hankey talking about the usage of gold and silver in a properly uh, tempered banking system. It is a most valuable thing. He, he said, Hanky of cash, and cannot, from its very essence, bear interest. Everyone is therefore constantly endeavoring to make it profitable, at the same time to retain its use as ready money, which is simply impossible. So, uh, so he said the remote cause of every crisis was, quote, the constant attempt to perform this miracle, which leads to all sorts of confusion with respect uh, to credit. Well, there is a... Uh, 
a wonderful quote from a third party, uh, uh, Lord Liverpool. And I get this from the, uh, uh, the most estimable scholar of, of, of Lord Liverpool, uh, uh, Martin Hutchinson, uh, by way of my friend Eddie Chancellor. And here is a quote from uh, uh, Robert Banks Jenkinson, later elevated to Lord Liverpool. Here is a one-sentence description of the nature of the credit cycle in a world of fiat money, which we have. All right, there it is. The tendency of an inconvertible paper money is to create fictitious wealth bubbles, which, by their bursting, produce inconvenience. Isn't that lovely? Well, it was true then, it's true now, except, ladies and gentlemen, for that 40% return on stockholders' equity. Here is the author of Lombard Street uh, giving his own views on, uh, on the nature of the properly structured bank balance sheet. Badgett, the main source of the profitableness of established banking is the smallness of the requisite capital. Being only wanted as a moral influence it need not be more than is necessary to secure that influence. Although, therefore, a banker deals only with the most sure securities, with those which yield the least interest, he can nevertheless gain and divide a very large profit upon his own capital because the money in his hands is so much larger than that capital. There you have it. Just leverage up, you get rich. And then you apply for assistance to the Bank of England, should that plan go awry. That's Badgett. That's Hanky, and that is Lord Liverpool. Um, so that you know, that's that's kind of the that's the the then controversy. It's today's controversy. Perhaps it will be the eternal controversy. Cato will tell us more about this in about fifty years. Um, but I wanted to tell you about a pleasure in writing this book, uh, and one of the pleasures is to be among the people with whom Badgett uh, dealt. Uh, with whom he corresponded, uh, whom he consulted. And they are an illustrious group. They, cons they can uh, consist of a small list, short list. There's a guy, a guy. There was an eminence called uh, uh, the magnificently named Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Yeah, don't you want to meet him? Isambard Kingdom Brunel was an engineer who designed Paddington Station, who built railroad trestles, who built mammoth steamships. And, uh, and um, if you buy the book, you shouldn't. Not on my account. But there is a picture of Isenbard King of Brunel that is worth the $500 price of the book. Uh, William E. Gladstone um, was another of my favorites. Uh, he was, you know, the, the oft re-elected uh, Prime Minister, Chancellor of the, elect, uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, had a storied and, and lengthy, lengthy uh, career in English politics. And uh, he was um, uh, one of the most formidably, almost demonically energetic people you ever come across. He chopped down trees for recreation. Uh, he uh, Read Dante, whom he revered in the Italian, having taught himself that language. Uh, and he loved Homer. Old Homer, uh, said Homer of, Glad of, of uh, Gladstone, of Homer as if they'd gone to school together. 
an evangelical Anglican, he read the Bible every day, either in English or in Greek. Um, German seems to have been beyond him, according to his biographer Roy Jenkins, but he did later acquire enough to be able to, in middle life, to hold theological discussions with Ignaz von Dollinger in Munich. All right, forever in motion. Um, here, is, uh, uh, here is Gladstone. Um, uh, uh, let's see if I. Uh, so he was the. Uh, uh, financial, he was the, uh, some official in the Ionian Islands. And uh, Gladstone got up to give a, a speech to the natives. And he was very proud of his mastery of Greek, but uh, he, uh, he gave this talk and uh, it was perfectly orated in Greek, but incomprehensible to his Italian-speaking audience. <laughs> Uh, J.S. Mill. J.S. Mill was, a, was another one. Um, he was, of course, as you know, the great the philosopher, a great uh, economist, uh, um, and uh, uh, a great uh, feminist. And um, Mill regarded the, uh, 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 his only significant contribution to English parliamentary life as, uh, that occurred during the, the drafting of the Reform Act of 1867. And uh, he said that, uh, quote, I, pref I, prefer, I performed in the capacity of an MP, uh, substituting the word person for man in the Disraeli suffrage bill. This is the nascent 1867 Reform Act. So uh, this is Grant writing now. Hoots of male derision uh, met the suggestion that women of all creatures uh, should be given the vote. And here is Mill addressing Parliament. It is thought, perhaps, that those who are principally charged with the moral education of the future generations of men cannot be fit to form an opinion about the moral and educational interests of a people, and that those whose chief daily business is the ju judicious laying out of money so as to produce the greatest results with the smallest means cannot possibly give any lessons to the right honorable gentleman who contrive to produce such singularly small results with such fast means. <laughs> so uh, John Stuart Mill, and then finally there's, a, or semi-finally, I mean, never finally, one of the other delightful characters was a man named John Lubbock, who was a, a banker. He's a contemporary of Badgett's, a very prosperous private banker in London. He was a, a naturalist, a mathematician, a parliamentarian, a great friend of, uh, of some of the uh, leading scientists of the day. And, he was, and Lubbock was the author of a bill to create the first secular holiday in British history. They'd all been Christian holidays until that point. But he succeeded at Lubbock, and the grateful workers called that bank holiday St. Lubbock's Day. And they still have it. Um, so uh, I um, want to read you a couple of passages to substantiate my claim that, uh, that Badgett was a wonderful writer. And this is much less contentious than the question of what a central bank ought to do in a time of crisis. Um, so uh, Badgett uh, uh, was uh, um, a terrific uh, a student uh, and a lover of literature. He was a, a consummate amateur in the purest sense of that word of literature. He wrote a, 
an essay on Shakespeare that repays reading and I suspect always will. And here is an especially elegiac uh, passage, uh, the background to which is that uh, Badgett's mother was mad and that he feared that he himself might one day uh, plunge into insanity. Quote, there is much of mankind that a man can only learn from himself behind every man's external life which he leads in company. There is another which he leads alone and which he carries with him apart. We see but one aspect of our neighbor as we see but one side of the moon. In either case, there is also a dark half which is unknown to us. We all come down to dinner, but each has a room to himself. Um, so that's uh, Badgett as, as an author. I, um, his stuff was, was consistently wonderful, as much as he wrote. Uh, and I uh, regret to inform you writers in the audience that, uh, yeah, it's true, he was a first draft writer, which is the almost unforgivable, but he was. Um, what else may I tell you about my hero? Um, I wanted to uh, uh, tell you about the, uh, I guess I should tell you about, uh, about the consequences of his ideas, his financial ideas. Um, uh, Badgett uh, 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 was, was so sure of himself on this question of, of um, lending freely at low rates of interest while uh, accepting only the best collateral of just solvent institutions. He thought for sure that was the way forward and that there was nothing that could go wrong with that. Um, but uh, we have perhaps learned in our own time that there are unintended consequences for many seemingly airtight schemes of financial betterment from the, the government. Um, and certainly in Badgett's time, uh, what seemed to work may no longer work just the way Badgett intended. Um, so, uh, about 1873, Badgett was um, uh, in the full height of his career and the full flower of his prestige with the publication of Lombard Street. Uh, the Bank of England governor at the time um, tried to summarize what he took away from Lombard Street. And here is his summary, which is a very good summary. Said to William Litterdale, quote, the practice of taking enormous sums on deposit at call or short notice, on which interest has to be paid in which there is almost a necessity to employ if serious losses are to be avoided, this practice, he said, is one that carries risk on its face, a risk to the banker who does it, who takes in demand deposits, deposits checking accounts, and then lends them out and pays interest on those balances. That's a risky business, said Litterdale. Quote, Mr. Badgett says things are so and that it is useless trying to change the system and then throws upon the Bank of England the, mean, the onus of providing a reserve adequate to the needs of all its competitors as well as regular customers." Close quote. So there's no better short form summary of Badgett's position. Uh, the gold question would not go away. Uh, Lombard Street failed to convince anyone to lay in more cash. And um, 
And so it went. Badgett died in, uh, in 1877. And by 1889, uh, the problem that Badgett bewailed, that is to say, too many claims on the gold reserve and not enough bullion in the till, that problem was even larger. So far from adding to their rainy day cash positions in proportion to the growth of the liabilities, the leading banks made do with less. Somebody at the time, even a little earlier, said that the gold standard in London resembled to him the, uh, the quality of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of teak veneer. So there's uh, like this bit of teak in the chair, the rest of it is, is maple. Uh, similarly with gold, there was this, this patina of gold in the system uh, but not enough, actually, uh, to honor the pledges of the bankers. 1906, Badgett's long gone, but George Goshen, um, who was, I gather by then, the chancellor, uh, makes the customary after-dinner speech at the annual event in the bankers' event in the city of London. All right, so uh, everyone's had a drink. After dinner, they push back their chairs and... Uh, and here is what Viscount Goshen says to his fellow financiers in London. He says, uh, someone must hold the reserve, though it bears no interest, and a larger reserve, too, he said, than the worryingly inadequate one on hand. Should that someone be you, the banks, the Bank of England, or the government? So the, the Financial News, uh, another financial paper in England, reported the results of this question put to the bankers by Viscount Goshen. Quote, it was significant that there was dead silence in an audience largely composed of bankers when he spoke of the possible duty of the joint stock banks in this connection of taking in more gold at the cost of the return on the stockholders' investment. The bankers were dead quiet with that suggestion. There was loud applause, the account goes on, when he suggested the Bank of England as an alternative sufferer. And vehement cheers when the gov government was mentioned as a last resort. The more things change, ladies and gentlemen, the more they remain the same. It would take another century, another system of monetary organization by the government. Many governments, along with their reluctant taxpayers, did finally bear the cost. And uh, as a postscript, I must tell you about, uh, about Stuckey's banking company. It went on uh, earning these munificent returns, these opulent returns on its stockholders' equity uh, in the decades after Badgett's death, thereby supporting in grand style the six Wilson sisters. Uh, it was sold was Stuckey's in 1909 to something called Pars Bank, which is, uh, again, used a financial terms, kind of roll-up of regional banks in, uh, in England at the time, Stuckey's own notes, its own bank notes, uh, were the largest issuance outside that of the Bank of England. So Stuckey's was uh, eminently prestigious as well as profitable to the end. Um, uh, Pars was at length absorbed by National Westminster Bank. And wouldn't you know it, that in the year 2000, that West was absorbed by the Royal Bank of Scotland, whose shocking, unforgivable failure in the Great Recession cost the British taxpayers 45 and a half billion quid 
Vincent Stuckey, the progenitor of the Stuckey's bank, said that uh, banks, bankers are mortal, but banks are eternal. Well, in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, I think that George Selwyn might have a few thoughts on that. So uh, thank you for listening. <laughs> Right, so uh, Jim and I are going to have a little discussion, if it's all right with you, and then we'll open it up uh, for, uh, for the audience as well, try to give, uh, give you plenty of time to ask questions. But I have, I've got a lot of questions I want to ask uh, Jim. Uh, and uh, and uh, uh, partly they, they begin with my sense of... Uh, of a, a real tension, almost a drama in the writing of this book, because it sounds to me, tell me if there's any truth to this, uh, that, um, well, first of all, you're obviously a real critic of Badgett. You, you, you're blaming him, you blame him for many of our modern financial woes. But you also said, and I, I believe you after reading the book, I, he's your hero. So, Tell, 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 tell us more about this love-hate relationship, starting with which of those things made you want to write the book in the first place? Did you love him then, or did you hate him then, or did you not really know what you thought of him then? Well, when I got to uh, New York City in, in uh, 1975 to uh, take a job at Barron's Financial Weekly, um, I, uh, I went to the public library sometimes on Saturday mornings. In those days, before the disimprovement of the stacks, you could get uh, bound copies of The Economist, ancient copies of The Economist in, uh, in print. And I would take these big, dusty volumes. And, uh, and when no one was watching, of course, you, when, you, when you get an old book, what do you do? You breathe it in, right? <sighs> At least I do. I love it. I love this. And I, I would read Badge, and I, I could tell his style because it was uh, unmistakable. And I would, I would read his unsigned pieces in The Economist and, uh, and envy him for his, uh, the fluidity and the clarity of his style and the grace of his style. So he was my, my mentor, to be sure not living, but he was my mentor as an up-and-coming financial journalist. Uh, so I loved his stuff. I didn't have any opinion on him as an individual. Um, and I, you know, when you, when you take a, as I guess I said, when you take a, a, a biographical subject into your house, you're taking a, it's like taking a border into your house. You, gotta, uh, you get to be on very familiar terms. The, the subject never uh, leaves home for the weekend. He's always around. He's always on your mind. And Badgett was a, a not especially companionable biographical subject. I've had some that I, I whose death I truly mourned. I, actually wept when uh, Adams passed away, although it was like more than 200 years ago. You think I get my, have some perspective on that. Uh, but, um, and I didn't kill him either. I, I know, <laughs> but with Badgett, it was like, all right, bye. <laughs> and I was, uh, frankly, I was rather glad he died young, 52. <laughs> although it does set a bad example for other financial journalists. Um, so uh, Badgett was uh, uh, condescending, uh, rather top-lofty, uh, snobbish. Uh, 
He was also a great listener. He didn't talk for victory when he conversed. He was meant to be, uh, by some measures, the most interesting man in London to talk to. He was a, after dogs and cats in the world, he was a supreme cat. He once said that he thought twice about saying hello to somebody because he didn't want to have any of the burden of any more acquaintances. Um, which is not the kind of person that you generally associate with journalism. You know, you're supposed to want to meet people. And so he was a complica complicated and not altogether uh, companionable presence. So I, I'm not sure either love or hate does it exactly. Um, as to his guilt in our present, uh, I think the very quality the, of his prose, as the very quality of Keynes's prose, led power and uh, accelerant uh, to ideas that were not necessarily original with them, but came to be identified with them. As we've seen, Bajit was by no means the father of lender of last resort. It was antedated him by a generation or more. Uh, but it became his by the quality of his work in Lombard Street. And he was a gold standard. I mean, one of the critics of this book said, uh, uh, it wasn't Grant's, by the way. We, we, our uh, criticism of this book was fair and equitable. But um, <laughs> one of the other critics said, Badgett did not believe in the gold standard. What? He, he, he lived it. He, was, he, he believed that only gold and silver were money, and nothing else was a credit instrument. So it's not really fair to charge Badgett with the sins that have been visited upon us collectively by dint of the, I think, of the of the abuse of this lender of last resort thing by the perhaps the necessary arc of self-destruction of, of a fiat system without any guardrails. I mean, what Lord Liverpool says, I, I quoted from Martin Hutchinson's uh, excerpt, is it's a wonderful summary in about a half a dozen words of what happens. Badger didn't want that to happen. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a Badger fan myself. Uh, and and that's despite the fact that uh, I'm also a critic of central banks and uh, certainly uh, am aware of the moral hazard problem. But um, if I might defend Badgett uh, on this issue, he did say, and I think you point this out in, in, uh, in your book, Jim, he did say that um, having the Bank of England act as a lender of last resort, as we would say now, was for him a, a, a second best solution. Uh, the best solution having been uh, not to create such an unnatural institution with monopoly powers to begin with. But then he says something like, well, we, we're stuck with it. We can no more get rid of it than get rid of the monarchy. See, that's, that's Badgett for you. He yeah. is... Uh... He is a thoroughgoing, pure establishmentarian. Mm -hmm. He wants what is. He wants to, you know, his political creed, so-called, was uh, um, moderate moderation. Was you know, that was his kind of the uh, the uh, unblood curdling battle cry, moderation. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but you know, he 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 loved paradox to uh, to a somewhat annoying extent. So it was it was for him a fun paradox that. This was not the best system, but let us make the best of it. Um, I also, I think somewhat in the background was that 40% return on equity of the Stuckey's banking company. Mm -hmm. uh, tell, tell us a little bit more about 
the relationship between Badgett and Wilson, who hired him yeah. to work for The Economist, and then, of course, married his daughter yeah. to him. Uh, was that, was, and, and, and Wilson was a political economist himself, of course, who wrote about uh, financial uh, matters. MP, and uh, yeah, he, yeah. Was, he was a formidable so, thinker. So yeah. what, uh, what kind of influence yeah. Besides the obvious, did Wilson have on Badgett as far as... Oh, Wil Wilson, as I, as I might have mentioned, uh, uh, was uh, an exponent of, uh, of, the, uh, of, a, of a very radical strain of individualism that was in full flower around the time of the crusade against the existing tariffs, the corn laws they were called, that would that, uh, enrich the land holding classes at, in England at the expense of the consumers of, uh, of English wheat and corn. Um, uh, Wilson was uh, an entrepreneur, a man of, uh, of characteristically, uh, you know, the like Gladstonian energy, uh, who went broke, um, paid off his creditors, uh, came back, founded this publication, wrote jillions of words a year for it. The staff mainly consisted of one. <laughs> um, and he had six daughters and, uh, and, uh, and no sons. So Badgett comes calling, and, uh, and uh, the love affair ensues, and they get engaged. And uh, James Wilson, for you fathers of daughters out there, you'll understand this perfectly. Um, on the eve of the wedding, uh, Wilson took to his bed in sorrow. <laughs> so did my father-in-law. I wonder why. <laughs> now what happens. Um, but the two of them, Wilson and Badgett, became very close. Uh, Badgett's own father was... Uh, uh, a somewhat retiring figure who has uh, lived uh, under the uh, shadow of uh, his uh, brother-in-law, who was the president of the bank at which Badgett's father worked. And his mother was a very outsized personality, mad as she was. And uh, so the, the father, uh, Badgett's actual father was in the background. Wilson was a much more dynamic and interesting and charismatic figure, and the two of them became very close. Uh, Wilson goes to India, dies, as so many Brits did in India. And then Wilson, uh, and then Badger takes over the, not only the, the paper but the family. He, he becomes the, uh, the head of the, the head of the family. Now you've talked about a couple of Badgett's uh, works, as well as, uh, of course, his writings, uh, regular writings, for the Economist. Uh, what is your favorite Badgett book? I take it it's not necessarily Lombard Street. I like Lombard Street. But, I, I, I don't. Not sure I, I care as much for the conclusion as others might on this stage, um, but uh, I, this, one of his first production between hardcovers was a book of biographical essays, and this came out when he was 29, maybe. He was courting, or 29 or 30, he was courting Eliza Wilson, and these essays are just wonderful. You can pick these things up. Um, there is. Um, there are on the web, uh, uh, on the used book sites, offers of, uh, of the collected works of Badgett, and you can buy them together or singly. They're not that expensive. And if you can find the, uh, a collection of his biographical sketches, uh, they, they run about, I don't know, they, they, they're, they're like, like 10 or 20,000 words and longer ones. They're very lengthy essays, uh, but they are truly wonderful. Badgett is a fearless essayist. He, he, he would write uh, uh, about... Uh, uh, he, he would write these essays uh, punitively reviewing some expert's book, and he wouldn't even mention the book, <laughs> which has happened, I guess, to some of us in this room as authors. 
but uh, the biographical stuff is my favorite. I've, I've read those too. I think they're fantastic. There's one in Adam Smith. It's a delight. You want to yeah. you want to take Adam Smith home and into your family after you read that. He does he does Adam Smith a great uh, great justice. I thought. What do you think Badgett would do if we were to revive him today and present him with a quick overview of the situation? I you think, think he'd fit right in. I think he would be a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He would be a brick. He would be a remainer. He would be a member of the Mandarin class of the Bank of England. He was an establishmentarian, and he he loved being around power and wielding the levers of power. No chance then of getting him to donate to the Cato Institute. Absolutely not. Oh well, <laughs> let him stay dead then. Yeah. <laughs> Jim, do you have? Uh, I know it's 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 always uh, asking a lot of an author to to talk about. Uh, his next book when he'd just gotten over writing one, but do you have any definite plans no. for your next one? No. <laughs> Is that a no, I'm never going to write a book again, or no, I'm not going to tell you? I'm watching or... Netflix. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, I think we could just go ahead and throw this open to the audience. If I have some more questions, and maybe I will, why, I'll just... And, and certainly, uh, yeah. if, if uh, events of the present day are of interest, you know, we want to talk about the... Yes, Fed, oh, you're yes. in the presence of, I, I think, address those questions. The Fed, to me, if you want, as George, is, as you know, is, is deeply conversant with the, with the most technical details of what's going on with the Fed. He wrote a book called uh, Floored, which is a, a clear and a quite damning description of the operating methods of the Fed, which are now coming to the fore. So uh, contemporary topics are welcome as well as historical ones. Well, thank you, Jim. That was almost as nice as your praise for your own book. <laughs> you got to keep things in perspective, George. Okay, let's open it up. Uh, gosh, uh, got a question all the way in the back. Wait for the microphone and do please ask a question. No speeches, if you don't mind. That's hard. Leave that to us. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, that's fine. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there is one bank in the United States whose partners would give up their last shilling and their last acre of land if the ban ba bank failed, known as Brown Brothers Harriman. Yes, My indeed. question is, why is there only one? And my second question, unrelated to the first, is do you think Badgett would have, how do you think Badgett would have gotten along with Calvin Coolidge? <laughs> Uh, I'm going to take the easy one first. Brown Brothers Harriman. <laughs> um, Brown Brothers Harriman is indeed, just as you said, a general partnership, the last one left. Uh, the general partners are at risk uh, to everything they own, including the Golden Retriever. Uh, what is characteristic about Brown Brothers also is how little risk they take with the balance sheet. They are mostly in the uh, transactions facilitating business and in the wealth management business. Their own balance sheet uh, is, uh, is managed as you might expect it would be uh, with minimal risk. Uh, so that it's not as if they, they take credit positions uh, against their own, uh, their own names. They really, they really don't. Um, and also you'd expect that in Wall Street where uh, any profitable thing is going to find emulation and emulators, that if Brown Brothers were truly uh, the model for others to, to mimic, that others would be mimicking it. 
that the fact that it stands alone tells you something about the uniqueness of the franchise and about the delicacy of the nature of the risk that you bear when you do form a general partnership. You know, hedge funds, the old um, uh, Alfred Winslow Jones model hedge fund, I'm sure you've read 1% management fee and 20% of the upside, this, the, the model that came into prominence in the 1960s. Uh, that was a general partnership. If you're if you're a GP of a hedge fund, you are personally at risk. Uh, if you're not an LLC, so uh, Brown Brothers plus hedge funds, but uh, Wall Street got away. I think the last firm of consequence to uh, uh, to uh, limit its liability was Goldman Sachs, and I bet it's really glad it did. <laughs> really glad. And Coolidge and uh, oh yes, Coolidge. I don't know. I I don't see them at dinner together. <laughs> uh, Coolidge was many things, but they didn't call him silent for nothing. And Badgett was a, as little as he liked much human company, he was a, a great talker. I don't th see much chemistry between them. I don't think so. He, Badgett uh, did say to his sisters-in-law that, uh, uh, that he attended dinner parties only with the greatest reluctance. He called his inevitable two female dinner partners towers of crinoline. <laughs> and he bewailed their conversational deficits. And uh, it was most ungallant of him to say that. But you had to drag him to a dinner party. So OK, I, I will meet, I'll meet you halfway, sir. Coolidge and Badgett together at dinner, each facing the opposite direction. <laughs> <laughs> Remind me to tell you a story about Sir Richard Francis Burton and boring com okay. conversations with that I cannot repeat publicly. Uh, yes. Yes, my name is Pat Korowski. I have a question. What would Badgett or any one of the other persons you mentioned have said if the regulator at those days said, you need to hold no gold against, as a reserve against loans to the government. You can hold only 1.6% against assets that some credit rating have given a AAA, or you must hold 8% if you go into such risky ventures as lending to entrepreneurs. What would they have said, knowing that never ever has a major crisis resulted from excessive exposures to something Exante perceived as risky? Um, the last thing, sir. Never ever have major bank crises resulted from excessive exposures to something Exante perceived as risky. They have all resulted from excessive exposures to something everyone perceived as very safe. Or in ignorance, knew not. Um, the Overend Gurney crisis of 1866 was a case in point. Overend Gurney, as you no doubt know, was, the, uh, was kind of the, the Morgan Guarantee Trust Company in the days of the Morgan Guarantee Trust Companies. Uh, not so grand, but singular uh, prestige on Wall Street. It was, it was thought to be 
uh, I don't know, it was like Brown Brothers plus, anyway, it was, it was uh, beyond uh, suspicion, and um, except that by 1861, uh, a kind of a rot had begun to set in on Over and Gurney, and by 1864, it was plainly insolvent because they had gotten away from bill broking, lending against uh, self-liquidating uh, commercial bills um, uh, at very low rates of interest with negligible rates. Anyway, they got away from that to lending against illiquid, long-dated projects. They were broke. So they went public. They, they brought in the public to buy shares. And there was a run, and it was a spectacular failure. And uh, Badgett did not see that one coming. What people could see in retrospect was that the Bank of England had bailed out over and Gurney in 1857 because it was too prestigious to be allowed to fail. Ten years hence uh, came the comeuppance for that particular error of judgment. Um, so I, one, of the, one of the features of this financial system that I was so interested by and I found in a way so laudable was how little regulation there was. Uh, Lord Liverpool, again, uh, um, said that uh, the evil will cure itself. Maybe he said that about 1825. Meaning, of course, that market forces will take care of the, the, the uh, illiquid ones, will fall by the wayside. Also, some good ones that, that got caught up and will fail. Uh, but markets are self-restorative. That was the ideology, and that was the practice. We have come full circle today to head off crises through intervention, perhaps storing up trouble, perhaps storing up fictitious values, perhaps leading eventually to inconvenience. I should say that uh, uh, Jim's book, I think, is particularly fine because there are so many moving parts to it. Uh, the, the, the biographical information, not just about Badgett, but all of his interesting acquaintances and the uh, back stories about uh, different financial developments in England and elsewhere at the time, all very beautifully woven together. It's a marvelous job of writing, and uh, every bit of it is interesting, including little tidbits about uh, Brunel and people like that, so it's wonderful. Let's uh, take some more questions. Uh, yes, right here in front. Don't wait for the mic and... Uh, Thank you. This was fascinating. And I hate to mention another book, but um, it seems to me Badgett must be one of those, those figures that's kind of mercurial. Everyone can read what they want from him to some extent. And by way of example, I read Felix Martin's book, The Unauthorized Biography of Money. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. But he cites Badgett extensively, and it seemed to me for the proposition that... Uh, you know, fiat money need not be tethered to an asset like gold. And what I heard you saying was that even though he believed the central bank should be the lender of last resort, or uh, that that he did also believe that it you had to leverage on a base asset like gold or silver. So, did I miss what's your thinking on? Well, I, um, my reading. Thank uh, you. Uh, thank you. My reading of uh, Badgett's um, views and uh, one particular document, uh, a fellow whose last name is Norman. He was a grandfather of the, uh, who's uh, the Norman of the 1930s Bank of England governor? Montague. Montague Norman. 
the grandfather of Montague Norman, was a banker in Badgett's time. He was a contemporary banker. He wrote for The Economist. He, um, uh, anyway, he, one day he took the trouble to write down Badgett's views, having talked with him. And uh, uh, Badgett had the following monetary views. He, he said, for one thing, said Badgett, he said, um, uh, banking ought to be open to anyone without the need to get a license to conduct the business of taking deposits. Free banking, free meaning, free to enter and exit. Um, uh, but his view that was a, perhaps of principal interest now to us is that gold and silver alone, dogmatically alone, are money. Everything else is a claim on money. So George, you have made, you, I think you have bridled at this term uh, currency that's backed. Yes. It wasn't backed by gold and silver. Gold and silver were money. The paper fronted the gold and silver, right? That's nothing. So, so that was Badgett's view. I, th I think he was not uh, one who would say that, uh, uh, that you could get away from gold and silver. On the contrary, he was a uh, believer specifically in, in, in treating them only as money. The very, very rare uh, person of that era, uh, let alone pragmatist of that era, who would have uh, been opposed to the gold standard, uh, who would have thought it a good idea to get rid of it. Uh, and by the way, uh, Felix Martin, for his part, uh, has a, a very overarching agenda, has an overarching agenda in his book which is to portray the whole existence of a monetary system and this, thus of monetary itself as, well, essentially the root of all evil. And so the, the book is meant to be a hatchet job on money, so much so that when I wrote a critical review of it and the title I gave the review was Mammon Dearest. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Anyway, some more questions in the back. Um, thanks a lot. Um, I love your book. Um, one of the things that I enjoyed the most were these uh, small details, and particularly um, uh, the, the stuff on Badgett's income, like the dividends from Stocky's Bank, his, 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 his earnings from his writings and things. Um, and I was curious about your experiences with the archives. Uh, so the first question I had was, did you ever figure out how he uh, squared his circle of his income? You did um, not. Uh, so my second question, what I was wondering about the archives was, um, what are the stuff that got cut from the book? Things that you found about Batchet that was really interesting, but for some reason you did not include. Do you have any stories from the archives that you would share with us? Things were too hot for the book. <laughs> um, no, uh, my editor and I both uh, deplore the paucity of sex in my book. Uh, is that... Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I, for example, one of the things I could not get, and maybe it's because I'm in this country and not in that country and didn't have access to the proper uh, government files, is I, I couldn't get his final net worth. I didn't know what, what his estate was appraised for. We did find some other estates. I couldn't get his. Uh, maybe somebody else will find that. Um, he was, uh, uh, the, the, my interlocutor asked uh, about squaring the circle. This re refers to 
uh, a note in Eliza's diary, um, a very, very dull document, but one which at one point says that they spent so-and-so, and we know that Badgett earned so-and-so minus something. So how do we get, uh, you know, so we don't know. Maybe uh, uh, the in-laws help, which has happened before in the annals of marriage. I don't know. Uh, now, I, everything that uh, we thought would would amuse, uh, instruct, or titillates right in there. Mm -hmm. now, he had children. Did he have no, children? He didn't no, have nope. children. So you didn't That even... accounts for his output. I see, yes. <laughs> so there's not even implicit sex in the book. No. <laughs> now, that, now that you mention it, George, no. Yes, in the back. Microphone first, sorry. Can you possibly help me with a very irritating problem that I have with The Economist? Your Does, subscription has lapsed? No, no. I actually, I <laughs> buy it for a Christmas present every year for my son, and periodically he comes home with a stack. Um, who are these people who are hiding behind the names of Badgett and other notable people? Oh, I, I guess that uh, The Economist continues to honor the tradition of unsigned journalism, which was very much the custom uh, in uh, the time of Badgett and, and indeed much later. Um, of course, it was such a small world that people actually came to know very quickly who was writing what, I think. Uh, uh, Badgett, I mentioned The Economist circulation fewer than 4,000. Uh, but similarly, with the, with the egghead journals, the quarterly journals for which Badgett would write, he didn't write the Edinburgh, Edinburgh uh, Quarterly was, uh, I think, Whig, and he did not write for that. He wrote for uh, the Quarterly Review, perhaps. Uh, but uh, the circulation of those publications was 3,500, 3,800. So it was, a, it was a very tight circle of, uh, of intellectuals and uh, uh, and and uh, uh, and people, uh, you know, au fait, just were on the inside. Badgett loved to be on the inside. In fact, one of the things I'm still mad at him for. Uh, uh, well, I shouldn't hold a grudge. When, when he was writing the Economist about the Overend Gurney failure, and uh, before the, the uh, before Overend Gurney went public, while the prospectus was five paragraph prospectus, while it was being circulated. Uh, the Economist wrote a, a kind of a, uh, a, its own prospectus on what uh, one ought to think about this transaction. And Badgett wrote, uh, well, there are risks, of course, and, uh, uh, but uh, the, uh, uh, the proprietors are moneyed people of long standing and, uh, and uh, rectitude, and uh, on the whole, it seems a very good thing. That's basically what he said. So, you, know, you could tell that. There was something in the back of his mind. It wasn't an uncritical review, but, uh, but it was mainly on balance. It was favorable. All right, so a couple of months only passed until May of 1866, I believe, when Overend and Gurney uh, uh, goes splat. Huge crisis, which crisis, by the way, Badgett covered magnificently on deadline. Uh, I don't know how he, I have no idea how he did it. Remarkable. Anyway, but so that so he had to fess up, right? He had been wrong about over and Gurney. Did he fess up? No, he did not. He told the readers, the Economist, approximately this. He said, you know, 
of course, um, we knew things that we really couldn't say. We knew how bad things were. Uh, uh, there are two kinds of uh, people, those on the inside, those. We are, you know, we knew. Uh, but, um, and it's remarkable, I read this and I thought, it's remarkable not that they have a circulation of 3,800, but they have a circulation not of just eight <laughs> after that. It was an extraordinary display of, I thought, of arrogance, uh, editorial arrogance on his part. He might have said, to, you know, God, we uh, sure dropped the ball. No. Believe me, I have lots of practice. As, uh, I've been doing this for the better part of 50 years. A lot of practice in owning up to error. And you better do it early and unreservedly, or your readers will not forgive. Their readers will forgive you, but not if you pretend you didn't make a mistake. Did Jim, uh, on this, did The Economist suffer a loss of circulation as a result of that episode? Uh, the data aren't there to... Uh, uh, the Economist's office were, were destroyed in the blitz, and the records surviving are very sparse. That's too bad. That's too bad. Let's take another question in the, in the back there, and, and then I'll come back to the front. All the way back. Did you have a question, too? Okay. So thanks a lot for the Cato Institute and for uh, this book. So my question is related to the history of central banks. And uh, my question for you is that, so would you say that the Bank of England operated as a central bank before yielding the lender of last resort function? Or would you say that that batch hut in encouraging the central bank to do so uh, participated in the creation of, of central banks as we know them today. Yes, well, as, as you know, uh, uh, the Bank of England was a profit-making commercial operation, first and foremost, and, uh, and uh, uh, Thompson Hankey, for one, uh, insisted that it was little different from Stuckey's. It was in the business to make a return for its stockholders. It was not in the business uh, to uh, bear the risk of the rest of the banking system, its competitors. Uh, the trouble, I think, with the Bank of England's, as it were, its personality before Badgett is people didn't exactly know what it would do. Uh, sometimes it seemed to act as a central bank in a time of crisis. Other times it seemed to hang back. And what Badgett wanted, and I think this is wholly defensible, is clarity of purpose. Declare yourself. Central bank? Lender of last resort? Or otherwise? And maybe that's one of the contributions that he made was to, he applied, after the over and Gurney business, uh, the, the governor of the Bank of England at the time came out and said that uh, uh, we acquitted ourselves honorably, as did the entire community, said he, praising the other banks. Um, and uh, he did this governor um, explicitly acknowledge a duty to main liquidity within the banking system for the system as a whole. And Badgett applauded that. So Badgett was certainly instrumental in institutionalizing that idea. And of course, the, the downside to that is the more people you institutionalize it, the greater the moral hazard becomes because everybody knows it's yeah. coming. You know, I once at an open meeting, one of the big shots of the Federal Reserve System got up and, uh, and gave speech and there were questions. And I said to sir, um, uh, listening to you, I wonder if it has occurred to you, as it has to us at Grant's Interest Rate Observer, that the Fed's true dual mandate is that uh, of arsonist and fireman. 
And he said, no, that had not occurred to him. <laughs> we have a question up here, and then I'll come back. Yeah, do you have any comments on Badgett's writings about the English Constitution? You know, I, I was properly taken to task in some of the reviews for dealing too little with the English Constitution as a book, and I, I, I think that's a fair criticism. Um, I read it, and uh, I certainly agree that, uh, that the crown is the ceremonial or the theatrical branch, and that the parliament is the working. But, but I, have, I, I, I confess um, a certain amount of uninterest and ignorance about the nature of the English Constitution. But uh, with the advent of the drama about Brexit, I certainly um, I'm going to uh, do a better job of faking it. <laughs> and uh, we have two questions. This whole row is, uh, looks like it's lining up to be a, a straight. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, sorry, sorry. United States. We've got a, sorry, we've had a miscommunication Have anything here. to say about finance in the United States? Uh, he regarded the finance in America as basically barbarous. Um, uh, but he did say that the system of concentrating the, the gold reserve, not in one individual institution like the Bank of England, but rather for, to, re, to charge the responsibility with every single operating bank. That was the way forward. That was the way to do it. Um, and, um, uh, uh, but, you know, I think all the Brits looked on America and it's kind of this screwy operations. You can't have branches. You can't uh, do this. You can't do that. And, and they, they, they looked on the regulations that uh, sometime attached to these banks. They didn't know what was going on here, except it wasn't good. But, um, uh, one footnote on the American system at that time, there was a bank in New York called the Chemical Bank. Chemical, it was a, um, uh, the Chemical National Bank, as, as it came to be known a little later. The Chemical Bank, uniquely and alone in the clearinghouse banks of New York City, survived the Panic of 1857 by paying out gold on demand by its to its depositors. And it came to be known after that as Old Bullion. Old Bullion. And it traded on that name into the 1920s. There was advertisements in everybody's magazine. And, and uh, ladies home, um, old bullion. And I, t I, I take the, uh, and, and so uh, time flew as fly, time does fly. And we come into the 80s. And wouldn't you know it, Chemical Bank is just as busted as the rest of them in the real estate crisis of the 80s. And, and its subordinated debt was trading at like 20%. And finally, it gets absorbed, or rather, it absorbs Morgan and to create the colossus today of J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, but it, I, I was I've, I've been fascinated by following the, the institutional evolution of old bullion over the years and to see the, the socialization of the franchise of safety or the nationalization of it. Um, there was a president of the national of the, of the chemical bank, then the chemical national bank, around the 1890s, named George Williams. And George Williams was interviewed by some journalist, and the journalist said, "Sir, what is the secret of your success?" Just like the PR people ask him to say. And Williams answers, "The fear of God." <laughs> <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, is uh, is. Uh, uh, might well be one of the 
lesser heralded tools of banking <laughs> in a fractional reserve system. <laughs> There's a very good account of all this in uh, Money of the Mind, yeah. and uh, I highly recommend, uh, recommend it. And I believe the gentleman who had the mic before uh, should have it again. Yeah, I gave it up. But uh, <laughs> I, I've lived long enough. I have so little life left, you know, actuarial. I don't really You're worry. You're my age. You're a year older than I am. <laughs> well, let's be careful. I looked it up. You're a year older than I am. So anyway, I, you know, I don't really don't lose any sleep about this stuff. But I love hearing you talk, and I have two granddaughters who I do am concerned about. Is there any way in hell we can sort out fiscal policy in this country? The Fed chairman today dodged the question. He said that's not our mandate. Is there any hope for us? Neither party cares a damn about debt anymore, it seems to me. So here we are, I, I, Cato. This is, this can something we do that, something? Yeah, this is something that George can contribute to, too, because he knows the innards of the, uh, of the clearing system and the banking system better than I do. But here's something I saw on Tuesday um, uh, that, uh, as you may have read or perhaps witnessed, uh, the interest rate charged for lending against the collateral of high-grade securities, that rate went from two-ish to ten-ish. Great stringency. Why? Well, the... The short of it, we'll know more in about uh, you know, five or 10 years, the real story, but for the time being, it seems as if there were a, a plethora of treasuries available for sale and rather a shortage of cash with which to buy them. And, and because of the post-crisis regulations, the dealer community is less, uh, is, is less capacity to take on supply temporarily than it did before 2008. All right. So uh, I'm thinking that here's a demonstration that the problem is the rate of interest. If treasuries were priced at an interest rate that appealed to ordinary cash savers, there'd be no surplus of securities. There would rather be a supply that was met by demand, right? It seems to me that the evidence of a, that the, 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 what a sur surplus means is they're priced wrong. Why are they priced wrong? Because the central banks of the world, perhaps most of all the ECB, the European Central Bank, are manhandling the most sensitive price in capitalism, the rate of interest. So uh, uh, do, when will the deficit matter? When will the fiscal mess matter? Well, when it matters when people are personally incommoded in the pocketbook. And maybe that day is coming. Uh, I think it maybe came a little bit on Tuesday, possibly. Well, yes, uh, we're going to be seeing some more QE probably as a result, too, because the Fed is viewing this simply as a shortage of reserves. And uh, that's their way, of course, of addressing that. But it's, uh, it's an interesting time to be an interest rate observer, isn't it? Yeah, you can hardly see them with the naked eye. <laughs> I, I, do we have time for one more, or are we, no? Are we done? Ladies and gentlemen, we're done up here, but we're not all done uh, with the event because we have a reception. And so uh, if you didn't get a chance to ask a question uh, now, uh, you may buttonhole Jim or me uh, at that time, unless you're too busy uh, imbibing something. So thank you all very much. See you out in the lobby. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.